All right. Um, the only announcement that I'm aware of is that we need to just look under here. We have the men's prayer breakfast, and the deacons' meeting is um, uh, Saturday morning. So men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning at 7:30, and then we'll have our men's prayer breakfast. And then the it does not feel like the air conditioner has been fixed yet. So somebody needs to get some anointing oil and. All right, so we may have a change of uh, attire on Sunday morning, go to shorts and T-shirts, get some fans in here to move the air around a little bit. It's warm. You think you're warm. It's warm up here. I'm higher. Hot air rises. All right, one of the things we need to pray, continue to pray for is for... Uh, uh, Builders of Israel for Raleigh Morris. He's got several things going on, and and uh, in his last um, last newsletter that he sent out, uh, their finances are not doing as well as they had hoped, and so uh, they've had some response to that. So that's good. But he was uh, several thousand dollars short of their monthly income. So we need to be in prayer for that, as well as for. Um, a number of other things that that are going on uh, in terms of our missionaries and also just in terms of um, a lot of folks who are dealing with different different health issues. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege to be able to come before your throne of grace. Father, we're just so mindful of the fact that everything that we have, everything that we are is due to your grace, due to your grace in providing a Savior, providing a salvation that is not dependent upon anything that we do, but totally upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Father, we're thankful for your word that you have revealed to us and that it is through your word, through the study through the internalization, assimilation of your word so that we can learn to think as you would have us to think so that we can uh, respond and react to life circumstances in a, uh, in a self-conscious manner, being aware of our responses, being aware of our thoughts so that we can reflect the um, person of Christ, Christ-likeness in our lives. Father, we pray tonight as we continue our study, coming to understand and to study who Jesus Christ is and understanding what the Scripture says, that that you would use that through God the Holy Spirit to just uh, challenge us to uh, think in terms of that is the character that that the Holy Spirit is, is forming in us. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to our own needs and application. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. It seems like we've been a little bit off track the last, uh, the last month or so, mostly because I was gone to Israel for two weeks. Then I had COVID and was getting over COVID for a week. Then I came back for a week, and then we had a special last Thursday night. Uh, with Aaron Lipkin, 
And so tonight we're back in our study of Philippians, which actually is related to understanding more about what is going on in the passage that we have studied on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And we're focusing on our understanding of this passage and what it tells us. This is one of about four critical passages on the person of Christ that we need to understand. We ought to constantly be reminded of 2 Peter 3.18, which gives us a command to grow in the grace or by means of the grace and the knowledge about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to study these things because our only knowledge of Christ is from the Scripture. And it's just amazing how many times in our world and in the a world of churchianity out there, uh, the focus on Jesus is not really on a biblical Jesus. And it's because there's not really a focus on on the Scripture. So we need to understand this, and we need to go back to those basic questions that the early church asked, and it took them about 400 years, well, after the ascension, took them, yeah, close to 400 years, to answer these questions in a theologically precise way, in a way that would reflect the many different things that are revealed to us about Christ in the Scriptures. So the first question, which we have addressed, is who was Jesus uh, before he came? And that has to do with two two doctrines. One is his... um, Trying to get this thing adjusted a little. There we go. Uh, One is pre-existence, and the other is eternality. Eternality, of course, is a characteristic of deity, but pre-existence would not be. And so we had to look at those issues pre- that he was pre-existent was held to by the one of the early heresies known as Arianism, and it's very similar to Jehovah's Witness today, and that is that at some time in eternity past that God created Jesus and and then and gave him deity, but it's not really deity if he's not eternal. It's sort of sub, some sort of sub-deity. Uh, and so there was the big debate on that that gets resolved for the most part at Nicaea, but they had to fight over it another 50 years before it really settled down. And there they recognized that Jesus, Jesus was fully God, undiminished deity, And then they had to work through the issue of who was Jesus when he came? What is the relationship of the humanity of Christ to the deity of Christ? Now, I'll warn you, as a pastor is supposed to warn you, that there are a lot of people who give a lot of lip service to language from the Scripture, but they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They don't believe in a Christianity of the Bible. And so they, you have to be careful. Satan uh, lays a lot of traps, as he did with Eve in Genesis, regard, in just in terms of language. And we live in a culture today that has a number of problems. One of them is that they have a uh, subnormal education now. If you're educated and grew up going to schools any time after, I would say, the early 60s, then the further you are away from 1963, the less you uh, were given any kind of honest, objective 
uh, education and history. And we're so far from it now that uh, in a lot of schools, not all schools, uh, you can't just t- talk universally about these things, but in a lot of schools and in nearly, I would say in about 99% of secular schools, uh, I think there's only three good schools in the country for for college, frankly. And um, anything else, you're sending your your children to a propaganda mill, where they are, where the intention of the faculty is to destroy whatever evangelical Christianity uh, and absolutes that you have taught them. They want to attack it, eradicate it, and uh, remake them in the image of uh, leftist ideology. And that really has been going on ever since many of us were in uh, in higher education. That's just uh, been been the norm. So we need to be aware of that and and train and prepare our children. And so there's still a lot of things that come out that if you don't read them carefully, if you're not aware of history, history of Christianity, history of doctrine, all those things are important so you know who's who and what's what and who's influenced whom and how those influences are being manifested uh, in the, uh, even in ele- elementary school to one degree or another. And a lot of this, when they do talk, when you hear people talk about Christianity uh, and Jesus, it's not the biblical Jesus. And it's very deceptive. Right now, I'm reading, I've been reading a book this week called uh, Open Letter or A Letter to the American People by Eric Metaxas, who is a conservative. He's got a background of being Roman Catholic. But if you don't read it carefully, you get sucked into a false methodology. And rather than going to Scripture to address how you address the culture, the culture battle that's going on today, he goes back to a, a German neo-Orthodox at best, and that means he didn't have a high view of Scripture. He, did, he, he used Orthodox language in unorthodox ways. That's what neo-Orthodoxy is. So when he talked about Jesus, it wasn't a biblical Jesus. When he talked about Scripture, it wasn't what you think. It wasn't an orthodox view of Scripture. When you t- talk about um, when you talk about the church, it's not an orthodox view of the church. And so people need to read this carefully because he's too generalized in a lot of his language and a lot of his terms. Now we all recognize that there are problems out there. And those problems need to be addressed in a biblical solution. I mean, he doesn't go to the Bible. He goes to Dietrich Bonhoeffer for his standard of, of, who, uh, of a model for how a civil disobedience should be conducted. You have others that are writing that are perfectly sound today, and one of them is Erwin uh, Lutzer, who was the pastor of Moody Church for probably 30 or 40 years in Chicago, has written a couple of books recently uh, that address these issues, but from a biblical perspective. And he comes from a a sound framework for the most part. I haven't read everything he says, so he could say things I don't agree with. But you don't find people going to the Bible as their ultimate authority. When you see people going to historical figures, not as illustrations, but as their ultimate authority, you know there's a problem. 
And so the reason I say that is, and I've had to spend time doing that, is when I get questions about my book, and I got two questions within 48 hours of each other last week on the same book, then I pay attention because I don't even get asked about that many books that often. So when I get two questions about the same book from people who don't have anything to do with each other, and um, then it's time to pay attention to those things. So I'm doing that. But and it boils down to we have to be careful. There's so many people that have a pseudo Jesus that go to quote evangelical churches unquote, and they say the right things, but they don't mean the same thing that you and I mean by those. So it's very important to get into these these topics. What we've learned is that Philippians 2, 5 through 11 was written in a context to provide an example of humility. It's not written to teach doctrine per se. It's not a Christological uh, passage in the sense of a systematic theology, but it it does provide an, an example of one aspect of who Jesus is in terms of the hypostatic union and the purpose of the hypostatic union. So there are things we derive from that passage, but it's ultimately teaching us on what it means to love one another and uh, genuine humility and serving one another. Uh, We also learn from that passage that Jesus preexisted his incarnation uh, in undiminished deity for, for eternity. Third, at the incarnation, God the Son did not surrender or give up. That, again, is a liberal doctrine that comes out of 19th century German liberalism. So you have to be aware of these things in some, to some degree. At the incarnation, God the Son did not surrender or give up any divine attributes or anything essential to, de- to deity that any surrender of his attributes would not have been possible. He would then have been less than God. Fourth, we saw that God the Son voluntarily restricted the use of his divine attributes uh, to solve the problems, the temptations, and challenges that he faced in his humanity, setting a precedent for us so that we are to look to Jesus. We are to fix our eyes upon him, put our attention upon him, study him to understand how he did what he did in dealing with the issues of life and suffering and opposition and all of those things. Fifth, however, the visible manifestation of his glory was veiled. The glory of his person was made manifest through his words and his works. It was made physically apparent on the Mount of Transfiguration. But John says the word, that is the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. But he never talks about the Mount of Transfiguration, the one gospel that does not, because his glory is manifested for John in his words and his works, not in a visible manifestation. So we've looked at these issues. We looked at understanding who God is in terms of his unity and plurality, and then we began to address these questions about Jesus' preexistence and looking at the passages from both Old Testament and then New Testament that focused on his eternality, focused on plurality in the Godhead, looked at passages in the Old Testament that talked about his uh, preexistence, passages that predicted his coming as the Messiah, 
uh, passages which indicated his humanity, passages which indicated his deity. And now we're looking at those last two passages in the Gospels which indicate his humanity and his deity, and passages in the epistles which indicate his humanity and uh, his deity. So that's where we are. So we are close to wrapping all of this up. We probably have one more uh, message on this, and then we will move forward in our verse-by-verse exegesis. So what we see in the Old Testament is that there are two lines of prophecy that begin to converge. One is that he will be a divine Messiah. The other is that he will be a human Messiah. The human Messiah is the seed of, of, uh, seed of the woman, traced through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, traced through the seed of uh, Judah, down through the line of David, and down through his Davidic line, the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, until you get to Jeconiah, and then there's a curse on Jeconiah, so that his seed will not, any descendant from Jeconiah will not sit on the throne. And so that's called the Keniah curse, or the Jeconiah curse, and that is means that that line from Solomon is blocked, and it goes through the line of Nathan. So that's the human Messiah. He's the seed of the woman. And then you have the line that talks about him as God with us, Emmanuel, and that he is uh, born miraculously through a virgin conception and birth, and he is the son that is given to us. A child is born, that's human birth in Isaiah uh, uh, 9-6, but a son is given. That relates to his title, as the Son of God. So this is where we are. The last two times that we talked, I taught on John 1.1. We ended up with uh, one message that went into the, um, uh, briefly into the Memra. And then after I got back from Israel, I had time to read and study and develop a lot more. So we looked at the Memra in more detail. And this was the Aramaic word, that is a cognate to the Hebrew word Amar. You can hear the M letter and the R letter. A is not really an A. It, that's the vowel. The first consonant sort of a soft guttural. And the M and the R, those are the, that's the root of the word. And so Memra takes it, makes it a noun, so it adds an M at the beginning of the word, so it's now M-M-R in Aramaic. And that becomes the uh, Aramaic translation for the uh, davar, the word, uh, the Hebrew word for, for word or communication, and logos would be the Greek word. So the argument now is that this is the background. John understood this, and he's making a connection with this full-fledged Memra doctrine that had developed among the rabbis in the intertestamental period. And nearly everybody that made some comment to me about this, and there were several people that did, thought it was fascinating that Memra was used in the intertestamental period in the Targums up until you get to the end of the first century when you get this revision 
of, uh, or finally, the, 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 this revision of Phariseeism, Sadduceeism had nothing to offer Israel, the Jews, after the destruction of the temple. Because why? They didn't believe in eternal life. They didn't believe in the supernatural. And that's why they were sad, you see. You just have to remember that. So the Sadducees had nothing to offer, so it was Pharisees that came together at Jomnia to uh, basically restructure Judaism according to rabbinical teaching and interpretations and not according to the Old Testament. But they discovered that this rabbinical concept of the Memra had been taken over um, by the Apostle John and used in the uh, prologue to the Gospel of John. And so they eradicated that word from the rabbinical terminology. It just doesn't show up again. That's just fascinating. And a lot of you caught that and made comments about that, that that's just so interesting how they... They are expunging anything in rabbinical theology that could be used to indicate that Jesus was, was the Messiah. So we looked at these passages, and the incarnation is, is taught specifically in John 1.14, and the word, the logos, became flesh, took on humanity. That's uh, Philippians 2, 5, 6, and 7, took on humanity dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, a very specific term indicating a distinctive relationship to the Father. He is the only begotten of the Father before his incarnation. Begottenness is eternal. It relates to the sonship of the second person of the Trinity, The Father doesn't become the Father just because the second person of the Trinity is born in a manger. He is always the Father. The eternality of the Son indicates the eternality of the Father. So now we're going to look at the full deity of Jesus Christ as it's indicated when you get into uh, the New Testament. And one of the ways that this is indicated is through the many different ways that Jesus demonstrates the attributes of the Godhead. We've all memorized the ten attributes that are in the essence box, that God is sovereign, he's righteous, he's just, he's he's love, he's eternal life, the three omni-brothers, he's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, he's immutable, and he is absolute truth, he is veracity. Now, those are basic. You'll have theologians who will uh, add one or two, organize them a little differently. And I've changed it up a little by saying that infinite applies to every one of them and holy applies to every one of them. And so that he is unique and distinct. That's the main idea in holiness. He's unique and distinct in every one of those, of those attributes. So Jesus is going to demonstrate this in everything that he does. So we have the attributes of deity, and the first one I'm looking at is eternality. John 1.1 is the key passage for understanding this, but there's two other key passages. If you can just remember this, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. If you've got that down, then you've got the three, three of the key passages on the eternality 
and the deity of Christ. Uh, we're going to look at those and a couple of others. Uh, John 1, 1, we've already seen in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, indicating a distinction with God, the God, with God the Father, and the Logos was God, indicating he's eternally that way. The verb that is used here in uh, John 1, 1 through 4 is the, the Greek verb eimi, which is in the imperfect tense. That's what you need to remember because there are two past tenses in, in Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, in Greek. There are two completed tenses in Greek. That's perfect tense and pluperfect. But the two past tenses are imperfect and aorist. Aorist sort of summarizes it up as one, one event. But imperfect indicates continual action in past time. So what this is saying is that it isn't just simply making the statement in, that in the beginning the word existed in past time, but that the word continually was existing in past time. And that the word was continually existing with God and the word was continually God. So that's a very strong statement that comes across because if the right, if John had used an aorist tense, then it would have just been simple past, which is how most people want to treat it. But the fact that he uses an imperfect tense verb when it, he does it, there's no necessity for that, indicates he's emphasizing that continuousness in past time. John 8:58, another use of grammar. Jesus is in a discussion with the with the Pharisees, and uh, he's talking. He's made some comments about. Uh, they they say, "Well, we're we're just following our father Abraham," and then Jesus makes the comment, "Well, Abraham w- would have rejoiced to see my day," uh, or he says in, in the present tense, "Abraham rejoice rejoices to see my day," and they said, "How can that be? Because uh, you are not that old." And so then in, in uh, John 8, 58, uh, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, past tense, um, I am, present tense. So he's making a very clear statement that he is God because the, the name for God, as you know, is Yahweh, coming from the verb to be. And so I am is considered a summation of the meaning of the name of God. So when Jesus used that and he said, ego in me, he's making a theological statement and he is claiming to be absolute and total deity. And so, you know, you, you may sit there and you may say, well, that's, you're, you're hanging a lot on those two words. Uh, how in the world can you make that sort of claim? And it's very easy because if you look at the next verse, verse 59, the Pharisees understood exactly what he was saying because they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They understood the implication of that, that verb tense. So I'm not making this up. They understood that, and so Jesus then hid himself and uh, went out of the temple going through the midst of them. So he just sort of uh, cloaked himself in invisibility. Colossians 1.17 says about Jesus that he is before all things. See, John 1.1 1, 1 said that he 
all things were existed through him, and apart from him, nothing that is uh, ex- was a, 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 had existed. And so he's before all things. Nothing comes into existence prior to the creation. Genesis 1.1, there's nothing. Not one thing except God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then he created the angels. So he, Christ, is before all things, and in him or by him all things consist. That's your answer to anybody who claims that man can destroy the planet. No, he can't, because the planet, the atmosphere, everything is sustained by the Lord Jesus Christ. He sustains everything. Now, that doesn't give you the responsibility to trash the planet any more than it gives you the responsibility to trash your house just because your uh, the housekeepers, whether it's your mother or your spouse, is going to clean up. So we should take care of what we have. That just flows out of the doctrine of stewardship. Hebrews 1.11 this is a part of a quote from the Old Testament. We'll see the full passage in the second in the second point. They will perish, referring to everything else in the universe, but you remain, that is Christ, and they will all grow old like a garment. He is eternal. Second thing we learn is that he is immutable. This is a word that means unable to change. Mutable is based on the same root as mutation. It refers to a change. The I am in front of it negates it. It means no change, no mutation, no mutability. So Jesus never changes. Hebrews 1 verse 10 says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Then we have the verse I just quoted. They will perish, that is, the heavens and the earth. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same. That's the key phrase. That's immutability. You are the same, and your years will not fail. Then in Hebrews 13, 8, the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our third is self-existence. This is the idea that Jesus is self-existent just as the Father is self-existent. This is what Moses learned the meaning of the name Yahweh was in Exodus chapter 3. He saw the burning bush, decided he needed to go check that out because it wasn't consuming the bush. And that indicated it's a it's a self it was a self existent fire. It, it's a picture of God's self existence. So uh, John one four says that in Him in the Logos was life. Life itself, the principle of life, is embedded within the Godhead and is dependent upon the Godhead, and that life is the light of men. John five twenty six. Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So the Son has life uh, in himself. 
So he's self-existent. That would also be derived from the fact that he claims deity and saying before uh, before Abraham existed, I am. Self-existence is embedded in the name of God. Fourth, we see that he is life itself. Uh, he, uh, this does not refer to life that is derived or dependent upon something else or someone else, but that he has life in himself. It's related to self-existence. He has life in himself according to a number of passages. We've already looked at John 1.4 and John uh, 5.26, but we can add to this John 14.6. Uh, Jesus said to him, now who's he talking to? He's talking to Peter. Well, Lord, we don't know where you're going or the way you're going. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Notice, I am the way, the truth, and the life begins with what two words? Ego and me in the Greek, I am. He's making another claim uh, to deity there through the use of that, uh, those, those words. John 5.26, which I just read, his father has life in himself, so he's granted the son to have life in himself. And then in Acts 3.15, he is referred to uh, by Peter as the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. This point is that he has the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. This is seen in Colossians 2.9. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, that's really interesting. He doesn't just say the fullness, which would indicate totality. All the fullness. It's the, the all is there for emphasis that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. Then we come to the sixth attribute here. This is uh, holiness in uh, Hebrews 7.26. Now, this is an interesting passage for a number of reasons, but it's talking about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Those are three titles, prophet, priest, and king, and he is our high priest as the church age. He's the head of the church as well. So there in Hebrews 7.26, the writer of Hebrews says, for it's fitting for us to have such a high priest. Now, no human high priest could be this way. But Jesus is, first of all, holy. What does that mean? I just covered it. It means he's unique, he's distinct. It doesn't mean that he's morally pure. Holy is not a synonym for righteousness. Both the Greek word hagias and the Hebrew word that it translates, which is kadash, are words, forms of which were used to describe temple prostitutes in the fertility religions. Now, if it has this inherent sense of being uh, morally pure, then you've got a problem because those uh, temple prostitutes were not morally pure. But they were set apart to the service of their God. So that gives us a strong understanding that holy means to be set apart to the service of God. We can't be set apart to the service of God if we're living according to our sin nature. 
That's why we are commanded in many ways to walk according to the Holy Spirit, walk by means of the Holy Spirit, uh, and all of the other commands related to walking. Hebrews 7.26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, first of all, holy, second, innocent. Now, innocent has a couple of nuances in English. One is similar to the word naive. Now, it doesn't mean that. But innocent is a legal term that refers to someone that is not guilty. Jesus was not guilty of any sin. This is why it's an appropriate term to refer to the uh, first dispensation in the garden because Adam and Eve were innocent in the legal sense. They were not guilty of any sin yet. Undefiled, that is another word. He's just not corrupted by sin. And he's separated from sinners. See, that he's, he's identical in his humanity, but it's an unfallen, it's a sinless humanity. And so he is now exalted above the heavens. He is holy. Seventh, he's sovereign in many spheres. Okay, that sovereignty means he is the ruler. He has authority over his creation as a one of the members of the Trinity, the Godhead, is sovereign over their creation. And so we have this in a number of passages. So this relates to one of the things we've studied on Tuesday night related to the creator-creature distinction. The creator is the one who is in authority. And God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have authority over all of their creatures. Matthew 28, 18, just before Jesus told the disciples that they are to go into all the world and, um, and make disciples and bap- baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and uh, teaching all to obey everything that he has commanded. So he preceded that by saying, all authority has been given to me, and he's delegating some of that to the disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. In John 5, 27, he said, and uh, has given him authority. God has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man, which is the most prominent messianic title uh, given to Jesus. In John 17, 17:2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then in Acts 2:36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That is uh, uh, Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. But these verses continue. If I can get this, there we go. First Corinthians twelve three. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Here, Lord is. Uh, emphasizing his deity and thus his authority. Philippians 2, 9, and 10, 
which is our passage that we're studying. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, the character, the uh, person that is above every person, every name, that at the name of Jesus, because of all that he is, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. Then we have Colossians 1.18, another key passage in Colossians 1 related to Christ. He is the head of the body. Now, this is talking about his authority over the body of Christ. He is not the head in the sense of source. So we may talk about the head of a river in English. But kephale, which is the Hebrew word for head, is a word that is only used of authority. It is not used of the source of a river. So Christ is the head. He is the authority over the, the, his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, which indicates preeminence, not that he is born physically, not that he had a beginning. So that you, the firstborn could be a second or third son. But if he's the one chosen to be the heir, he's identified as the firstborn. It means the preeminent one. It does not indicate uh, a numerical uh, distinction. So he's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. First Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, have been made subject to him. So he's the one in authority. Okay, that brings us to the eighth attribute, and that is that Jesus is omnipotent. That means not that he can do anything, but that he can do anything that he desires, and that means his desires are always in conformity to his righteousness and his justice and his love. So he can do whatever he plans to do, whatever he intends to do. There's nothing too difficult for God, for with God nothing is impossible. So there's several verses that set this forth. One is Luke 8:25. Jesus is talking. He says, where's your faith? And they, the disciples, were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? He commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. This is when Christ stilled the storm. In John 10, 18, he's talking about his authority. He said, no one takes my life from me. That's the context. But I lay it down myself. It's his volition. He gave himself, not because he had to, but because he desired to. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. 1 Corinthians 15.25, for this is confusing in English. It has lots of pronouns, and you have to go through it carefully to distinguish to whom the he and the him refers. For he, that is Christ, the Son, must reign, that's in the millennial kingdom, until he, that is the Father, has put all enemies under his feet. That is when they make his enemies his footstool, Psalm 110, verse 4. 
1 Corinthians 15, 28, Now when all things are made subject to him, that is, subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, that is, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So he is omnipotent. Philippians 3.11 says, uh, Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So he's the one who transforms us from our mortal flesh to our resurrection body uh, that conforms to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Colossians 1.16, back in Colossians 1, great passage on Christology. For by him all things were created that are in heavens and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, that includes the angelic host, fallen and uh, elect, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. That relates to the um, angelic hosts in their various divisions of authority. All things that were all things were created through him and for him. So John one, that nothing that was created was created apart from him. All things were created through him. Uh, Colossians one seventeen, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Hebrews one three says, um, who being the brightness of his glory. That is the effulgence or the expression of God the Father's glory, his essence, and the express image, or we could say the identical nature of his person, that is the person of God the Father, and upholding all things by the word of his power. So this is Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. It is not human science. It's not our ability to clean up the environment. Everything is held together by the sun. Uh, And when when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. He is totally sufficient to save all who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's related to his high priestly ministry. It's a great verse for eternal security because he saves us to the uttermost. We don't save ourselves or keep ourselves saved. 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Another great verse for eternal security, that that it is God who is able to keep us uh, until that day. So ninth, we come to um, uh, omniscience. Omniscience, and in omniscience, Jesus knows all things, just as the Father does. He knows all things. Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. 
So they're omniscient. They know each other fully and exhaustively. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then we have our John passages, John 148. Uh, when Jesus goes down and Nathaniel has been sitting under the fig tree and uh, Jesus uh, says, well, I saw you sitting up under the fig tree. And so Nathaniel says, well, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called, called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. John 2.25, he had no need that anyone should testify of man because he knew what was in man. He's not trusting those who believed on him because he knew that they still held to a political agenda for the Messiah. And it wasn't that they weren't saved, which is what Lordship Salvation people try to say. John 10.15, as the Father knows me, even so, I know the Father. It's, it's exhaustive. The knowledge that the Son has of the Father and the knowledge the Father has of the Son is exhaustive and infinite. John 13, 1 and 11, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, omniscience. Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. It's omniscience. He knew it would be Judas Iscariot. Uh, John 16:30. Now uh, the disciple says, "Now we are sure that you know all things, and have no, no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God." John 18:4. Jesus therefore knowing all things that would come upon him. First Corinthians 4:5. Uh, Paul says, "Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes." who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Jesus knows every thought we'll ever have, every sinful thought, every good thought. He knows everything. We can't hide anything from him. Colossians 2, 3, in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he is omnipresent. Omnipresent means that he is everywhere. Matthew 28, 20 says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John 3, 13, he says, no one has ascended uh, to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. See, there he's also asserting his uh, source, that he is eternal. He came down from heaven. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, claiming he is uh, able to do it. Uh, John fourteen twenty. that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. So he is, uh, he, he knows that, knows that. And fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So he's omnipresent. So he knows all things because he's present to every, everything. All right. So these are the things where Jesus um, demonstrated the attributes of deity. Nothing is left out. Now we have another category, and that is his assertions about his own deity. He claimed, You'll hear liberals and neo-Orthodox say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you don't have any idea what he claimed because you don't understand any of the idioms in the Scripture. You've redefined them all. And Jesus is still talking in John three sixteen and 17. 
And he says, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. So he's claiming to be the son of God, which means full deity, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world. Remember, the phrase son of God emphasizes his deity. In Jewish idiom, if you are an idiot, then you will be described as the son of an idiot. If you are destructive, uh, you'll be called the son of destruction, the sons of Belial. That's what that means, the sons of destruction. That's what you can, if, if you are, um, you know, a, a fool, you'll be called the son of a fool. It's not that you're making comments about your parent. It's making a comment about uh, your character that you are you exhibit that characteristic. So when he refers to himself as the son, the son of God, then he is affirming his deity. John 6:41 and 42 he says he came down from heaven. I am the bread which came down from heaven. And then they're they're really confused. They said, "Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We we watched this kid grow up. Uh, how is it that he can say I came down from heaven?" A little further on, a few verses later, he said, This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. So he's using the metaphor of eating and drinking as a a metaphor for trust, for receiving Christ, for believing in him for Savior. And 651, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What an astonishing claim if you're just a nice guy and a good moral teacher. You're claiming that he will live forever. Um, The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. John, a few verses later, John 6, 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna. They're dead. They died. They're buried. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So I put a picture of the second century synagogue that was built on the first century synagogue where Jesus taught. John 6:62, he says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So he's claiming that you know, before he came down, he was in heaven, which, where he's going to return. John 7, 29 says, But I know him, meaning the Father, for I am from him, and he sent me, not in some sort of spiritual sense, but in the sense that Jesus was eternal and with the Father. That has to be interpreted in light of John 1, 1. Therefore they sought to take him. They understood what he meant. They sought to stone him. They sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8 He said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of the world, I am not of this world. John 8, 42, I proceeded forth and came from God. Again and again, he claims to be from heaven. He claims to be from God. He claims to be deity. In John 8, 56 uh, to 59, uh, he's confronting the Pharisees. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. 
And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, what do you mean? You're, you're not even 50 years old yet. How have you seen Abraham? And that's when Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly making a claim to, to deity. And so they attempted to stone him again. John 10, 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They were really after him, but he had to die a certain way. Jesus answered them, Many good works I've shown you from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself God. So see, that's a great verse to know. So when liberals say, Well, Jesus didn't really claim to be God, then why were they trying to stone him all the time? because they understood that he made himself out to be God. John sixteen twenty seven and 28, For the Father himself loves you, talking to the disciples, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father. He, again and again. And at the end, John 17, 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you and goes on to say, with the glory I had with you in the beginning. So all of these were various assertions that Jesus made about his own, uh, about his own deity. So I think we have enough time to cover one more little section here, and that is Jesus' claims. He claimed to know God. He claimed to have an intimate relationship with God. Just compare and contrast a number of these statements. He said that to know him is to know God. In John eight nineteen, then they said to him, that's the, not, that's the Pharisees, where is your father? Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. See, he's claiming if you know me, you know the father. He says that again in John fourteen seven when he's talking to Philip says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and you have seen him. Remember, Jesus is the one who uh, uh, reveals the father. John 1.18. To see Christ is to see God. John 12.45. He who sees me sees him who sent me. John 14.9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen my Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? To receive Christ means to receive God. In Mark 9, 37, Jesus said, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So to receive Christ means to receive God. To Next, to honor Christ is to honor God. John 5.23, he says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus said he was one with the Father in John 10.30. I and the Father are one. He also claimed to be the object of saving faith. In Matthew 11:28, he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 3:36, he said, He who believes in the Son 
has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus claimed in John 14, 1, uh, that if you believe in him, believing in God is the same thing. So he said, uh, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Then in John 17, 3, he said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, this is his prayer to the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He claimed to have authority over the temple, something that only God could have. Matthew 12, 6, he said, yet I say to you that in this place there is one who is greater than the temple. Talking about himself. He had authority over the Sabbath, thus he had authority over the Mosaic law. Matthew 12, 8, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In Matthew 16, 19, he has authority over the kingdom. Who gets in, who doesn't? He says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then... Uh, last of all, he claimed uh, authority over God's covenants in Matthew 26:28. For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So what we've seen tonight is that the deity of Christ is clear in the New Testament. Jesus uh, demonstrated that he has all the attributes of deity. So that shows that he is God. Jesus claimed to be God in numerous passages, and Jesus claimed authority over many things that was authority that only God had, and he claimed that to know him was the same as knowing the Father. Seeing him was the same as seeing the Father. Receiving him was the same as receiving the Father, and honoring him was the same as honoring the Father. So it's indisputable that Jesus claimed to be God. Now, next time, we're going to come back and look at the evidence of Jesus' true humanity, that he was true, genuine, sinless humanity. And that is important because there was a heresy in the early church and one that lived on for a number of centuries that he was just a sort of an apparition. He just appeared to be there. He wasn't really... Uh, flesh and blood because material things are inherently evil according to Platonism and Neoplatonism. And so by imposing their philosophy on Scripture, uh, Jesus could not have been actual physical flesh or he would have been tainted by sin. But that's not scriptural, that's Gnosticism. So we'll come back and look at that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to come to a clear understanding of who our Lord is that we may understand that all authority has been given to him and he has delegated to us authority and in the mission of uh, learning your word, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and applying it and telling others about who he is and what he did for us. We pray that we might have a, a great passion to do that. We pray in Christ's name, amen.